a record number of days above 70 degrees in November in a row. What a wonderful time to be alive. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnson, and Chris Ranowski, who really would rather be outside right now. <laughs> yes, wait a minute. <sighs> my kids are raking leaves. And you're eyeing that paddleboard thinking, one more time. One more time. Oh, yeah, I didn't put it away again. It's in the garage. All right. Well, we got to get through the podcast before you can go sit outside to work. So let's begin. Who are the latest top officials of First Energy who no longer have jobs while the big bribery case continues to be investigated? Jane Cahoon, there's a house cleaning going on in the upper <laughs> echelons of First Energy. That does not bode well for what the criminal case might foretell. Yes, First Energy revealed in a regulatory filing that it has, quote unquote, separated from its top in-house lawyer and its chief ethics officer. So these are the latest departures of top company executives in this ongoing federal bribery investigation that's tied to the Ohio State House, as we know, in House Bill 6. Uh, so Robert Refner, who's the company's senior vice president and chief legal officer, uh, and Ebony whose name I will just massacre if I try to pronounce, uh, the company's vice president, general counsel, and chief ethics officer. They both left the company effective November 8th, and that's according to this filing with the SEC. Uh, they didn't, the company didn't specify the, the reason behind this move, but, but unlike the earlier filing that disclosed the quote-unquote terminations of former CEO Chuck Jones and, and two other top executives, uh, that this Sunday filing on the other two just said they had separated from the company, but they certainly are overhauling their their internal operations amid this ongoing investigation for sure. Okay, so <laughs> let's go back a little bit. When this news broke that First Energy had $60 million that was used in a big bribery scandal for a $1.3 billion bailout of the nuclear plants that owned at the time, and more importantly, a rate scheme that really stuck it to the people of Ohio to enrich First Energy, their statements at the time were, we're an ethical company, everything we've done is ethical. So when your chief ethics officer is now walking out the door, what does that say for your original claims about everything we did was ethical? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so no First Energy officials have been charged or officially named. But as we know, these charging documents make it clear that they are central to, to this scheme. And in another recent filing, they they acknowledged that that criminal charges could result from this. Yeah, so. what, a, what a shock. So what, <laughs> is it, what does it say that they dropped this thing on a Sunday? It's almost like they're trying to hide <laughs> it. I mean, why would you drop a filing like this on a weekend, a beautiful November weekend where everybody's yeah. outside and nobody's on their computer? I mean, is it trying to hide they're it? They're not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. We found it. <laughs> we found it. You know, it would eventually come out. But um, And you know what? If I could just mention another kind of a side development here. So, you know, this whole scheme that the uh, federal authorities say was engineered by former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder, uh, who, you know, is, uh, as I said, supposedly engineered this bribery scheme where he accepted all this first energy money into dark money accounts and used it to advance his career. And, and he's under indictment. He uh, 
used almost a million dollars from his campaign account uh, in his criminal defense, according to his campaign filings. And the Attorney General Dave Yost and the Secretary of State Frank LaRose have both filed these complaints against him with the Ethics Commission. Well, we learned that the commission who, I, I mean, I think it's pretty well established that they really don't have any teeth. They they said they're probably just going to wait to hear this complaint. They're not going to hear it in the near future because they said the reason is householders not cooperating with them and they 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 need solid proof about these expenditures. So apparently they're just kind of waiting this out. So Chris, go ahead, throw your flag. Well, I mean, it's it's a misdemeanor anyway. It's the problem isn't really that they're not investigating it. It's that Ohio law makes it very attractive to householder to spend a million dollars of his campaign account because the the result of of doing that is a slap on the wrist and he's facing, you know, decades in prison if he gets convicted. So, you know, yeah, we have a lame election commission, but but the more important thing is we should really strengthen our laws so that you can't you can't do what householders are doing without having some guardrails. Right. But, and and Yost is suing separately. So, you know, there's he's he's not letting it go or anything. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about our friend Dave Yost in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> this week in the CLE. Why did Ohio hospital officials sound so alarmist during their briefing about the coronavirus Monday? And was that their intention? Chris Ranaski, it seemed like they, they got together to try and do what DeWine does, where they cajole us into wearing masks without intending to scare the hell out of us. But I don't know. I took away like, oh, no, this is bad. Yeah, there were some some things in their discussion yesterday. Uh, DeWine had a, a special briefing yesterday with uh, doctors from, I think, about four of the, the leading health systems throughout the state of Ohio. And one of the things they sort of pointed out, it, it was interesting because they talked, but they didn't seem very alarmist about anything. But then you when you if, if you sort of zoned out for a minute, you would hear something like, wait, what the heck? Did he just say, I got to go back and listen to that. And it was it, one of the things that they said that I, I think was a little concerning is, is they're not so much worried about having enough beds and they think they have enough uh, PPE and ventilators and drugs to help treat the coronavirus. But one of the things that they're really worried about is having enough staff to treat people because people in, in hospitals are getting sick uh, during this current surge of COVID-19. And um, they claim that they're catching it in some of the communities where they live, which led hospital leaders to emphasize mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing and all that stuff. So that was, I think, the the first concerning thing they talked about. The other thing I think was a little weird is that they're really putting all their eggs in the vaccine basket. You know, I mean, they're you know, they're all very hopeful that this news from Pfizer is going to be good news for them. But um, but but I think what's interesting is we still haven't we haven't reached a troubling capacity yet. We, we still, according to these doctors, we still seem to have enough room in the hospitals. It's just when you get there, you may be, you know, untreated because nobody's around. Well, but when they said that, they also were saying, but they kept talking about the ex- exponential increase in hospitalizations with a nod to the idea that if that continues, of course they will not have space. They're predicting we have space now, but if you listen to their description of the the exponential increase with no signs of abating that, you know, do the math. We will run out of what out of room. I was glad to hear them. And I think this came up in the question period 
finally acknowledge that Thanksgiving could be a problem. I've been stunned. We talked about this two full weeks ago on the podcast that DeWine and others are not cautioning people don't do Thanksgiving, that that is going to spread it. And we keep hearing from people anecdotally that say, yeah, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm doing it anyway. We asked DeWine about it two weeks ago and he basically said, yeah, I hope people use judgment, but there wasn't the urgent, like, don't do this. You, you felt like the doctors were getting there yesterday, right? Right. And I, and I think what, what is, I mean, the doctors kind of parroted the same thing that, that DeWine has been talking about, which is, you know, a lot of the spread is taking place at small gatherings of people. They really went out of their way to sort of say that businesses and and restaurants and bars aren't the problem, which, (laughs) which again, they have not, I know I'm harping on this a lot, but I, it's interesting to me that that you could, it's not okay to go to a friend's house and sit there without a mask on, but you can go to a restaurant, sit down, take off your mask and be surrounded by 75 other people in a, in, in an enclosed space. Like the math on that doesn't make sense. And I would love somebody to explain to me the difference, but they have no data. Let's remind everybody that they never sought to find that out. And so they tell us that and they don't have anything to base it on. They just like to tell their anecdotes. So I'm with you, man. The restaurants are probably really dangerous. And and what I think is, and, and, and I guess what I, what I, what I would, would caution people to pay attention to is how quickly our number of cases is going up. Like the, the, the span between us breaking that 200,000 mark and hitting 250,000 was very short. You know, I mean, we're, we're roughly hitting about 10,000 new cases every two or three days. So that's a lot. And, and, and we have moved up the ranks as far as like statewide infections on this. So, you know, it's, we're hitting a troubling spot. You know, I, you know, I hope that, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, we're, we're sort of still leaning on the people will do the right thing thing a little <laughs> right. too hard. I, and, and, and I just, I don't, I feel like everybody who has heard that message has heard it. And, and I, and the people who are willfully choosing not to hear it are not going to be moved. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's to me there it's it's there's no undecided voters in this like mm-hmm. like I don't know why we continue to have debates about it like we're you know yeah. you're not going to you're not moving the needle anyway and no. and it but but again and that's, and that's really what the point of the briefing was yesterday it was again to appeal to the better angels and there's nothing concrete I'm still sticking with my theory that it, we turned on our heat and it's the HVAC systems you watch some months down the road I'm going to get proven right you're listening to this week in the CLE How did Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish put some teeth into his push for justice reform Monday? Laura Johnston, we've been beating up Armin Budish pretty bad because of all the incompetent things that his administration has done. And there's a lot of them. And it was another kind of alarming thing at the jail yesterday with an inmate getting killed. But but we have been on justice reform for almost five years, pushing and pushing and pushing for it. And Armin Budish stood up yesterday and put something behind it which was pretty cool. What was it? Yes. So the county is going to pay $200,000 to the Los Angeles-based Bail Project. This is a nonprofit that posts bonds and provides support services for defendants in 18 cities across the United States. It served Cuyahoga County defendants since July of last year. So the county is going to use about $33,000 from federal coronavirus aid with the argument that that's going to reduce jail population and be 
better for not spreading the disease. And then $167,000 is going to come from the sheriff's department budget. Um, the nonprofit, the bail project will use this money for operational support, staff, transportation, prepaid phone cards, other client support services, because they use a revolving fund to actually pay for the bail payments. Um, so they don't need the money for that specifically. And it's working. The whole idea here is, is that people in poverty can't afford bail. And so the system's unfair. People with means get to go home. People who don't stay in jail, they lose their kids, they lose their jobs, and it wrecks their lives. And the, the argument against letting them out is that they won't come back, but they do come back. It proves yeah. it works. Justice reform is an important thing that we need to complete. But at least for the uh, interim, there's this money available to help people get out. There's this great statistic. As of November of 2019, the bail project posted bonds for 114 uh, people in jail. And once released, they went to appear at court appointments about 94% of the time. So I don't know what the regular uh, statistic is, but 94% seems pretty good. We, Chris Warnowski. It's, it's interesting that, you know, we've been writing about bail reform for how long? Like three, it's four years? It's almost five years. No, five years, five, right. Yeah. And Pete Krause has been writing about this issue. And it's just, it's interesting to me that in lieu of actual meaningful bail reform, you know, we can't get the judges on board to, to, to do bail reform. So we're going to do the end around and just figure out a way to just, uh, you know, raise money for bail for people. It, just, <laughs> it seems like a, a, a very sort of bureaucratic government solution to a problem that could be addressed if there was the will among the right people to address it. Well, but I, but I do want to salute Brutus here because he has the will. He has been four square behind this from the beginning. He brought a whole justice reform package to us, I think in his first year as county executive six years ago. He's always wanted to do it. He's always put something behind it. And to kick in this kind of money, um, yeah, I just, I, it's impressive that he oh, did no. it. I mean, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's great. And I think what the, the, the bail project people they're doing is pretty admirable, but I, it's just, it's fascinating to me that there is this, this almost fear among our judges to, to really deal with this solution and, and in a meaningful way, because our jail, you know, I mean, we, we talked about, we've talked about jail crowding a lot. I mean, that's another thing that we've been writing about for years now. And, and I mean, it would be the most common sense solution to addressing that problem. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to have a meaningful conversation about that. So, so, you know, I liked it. I mean, again, this is a great. Well, I, for, I, I think, I think we should put the blame where it belongs. Cause I, I think the public defender, the prosecutor, the county administrator, and a bunch of others do want it. The judges mm -hmm. are the problem. They've been yeah. the problem all along. They've been dragged kicking and screaming into it and it's been part of an ele you know it's part of the election process it will be again the judges are trying to fight justice reform because they think of their courtrooms as fiefdoms it's part of the problem with electing judges well right and that's the i think the the issue here is that you know you have a lot of judges who rarely ever face a meaningful opponent and bail reform is a hard sell for people. You know, I, I, I you know, it's 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 something that, not, not that it's hard for voters to wrap their heads around. So. I think it's easier than ever. And it's a Republican cause because it saves money. Anyway, let's move on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is a former journalist, which is why he probably still loves being in the headlines. We know. But what is he thinking getting formally involved in the continued squabbling about the election process in Pennsylvania? Jane Cahoon, what is he doing? 
<laughs> so he's inserted Ohio into this lawsuit over mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, the ones that arrived after the election. And I should explain here, because of the coronavirus pandemic, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court before the election ruled that, you know, they gave him an extra three days to accept mailed ballots, you know, that arrived within three days of the election, as long as they were postmarked by election day. Because as we know, during the pandemic, a lot more people were mailing in their ballots. I should also note that unlike Ohio law, which allows ballots to arrive as late as 10 days after the election, as long as they're postmarked the day before the election, Pennsylvania law normally does not allow these late arriving ballots at all. So Republican leaders in Pennsylvania at the behest of the Trump campaign have asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and throw out these uh, ballots that arrived late and not to count them. So now enters Yost, who filed a friend of the court brief supporting the Republicans in the Trump campaign. And uh, other Republican AGs have, have filed their own similar brief. But so here's here's the part where you can judge whether whether this is political or whether Yost is is raising a legitimate issue. His brief says that state legislatures, not state courts, should set the rules for picking presidential electors. The states need an answer to that question, which is certain to arise again in future elections. And it's important to provide that answer now because without a ruling from this court, doubts will continue to linger about whether the vote count in Pennsylvania was performed in conformity with the Constitution. That, uh, that, they, that, that's just so bogus. I don't have enough <laughs> yellow flag material. To throw. I knew it. I knew every, I was setting you right up for that. Every state determines its election system. That's the way it works. Every state does it separately. In Pennsylvania, they set up a system. They went through the courts. And ultimately, the state Supreme Court is the arbiter of the law in Pennsylvania. Ohio has no standing there and this is this pure party nonsense by Dave Yost. You know he does a lot of things that we think are cool. Like he he has taken steps to stop Larry Householder from using his campaign fund to defend himself, and he's tried to stop First Energy from benefiting from the money from HB six because it was passed corruptly. But then he does stuff like this, and you just think, man, is he just trying to be to, to, to be far further right? Then Mike DeWine, does he want to challenge Mike DeWine for governor in, in a couple of years and, and be further to the right of Mike DeWine in a, in a Republican primary? Because really, let's, there's no standing. He's wrong. The Pennsylvania <laughs> decides what Pennsylvania does. You know, you know well, he's making a distinction between, you know, the legislature's word and and the court, you know, stepping in and deciding that. I should also note that he's he's not making any of these claims of widespread voter fraud that Trump and some other Republican officials are doing without any evidence. And he's he's not saying that votes shouldn't be counted after Election Day, but he's seeking an answer to to the issue of, you know, whether courts can go ahead and extend the deadline for for the ballots. If a Democratic attorney general from another state entered a fight that Ohio was leading He'd be the first one to say they should keep their noses out of our business. <laughs> is, is it, look, this gets back to the way I phrased the question. He loves a good headline. He certainly got it. It was the most popular story <laughs> on our site yesterday. Way to go, Mr. Yost. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Why did the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner close his offices to the public Monday? Chris Ranowski, I was a little bit surprised at this. All of a sudden, even though Mike DeWine won't shut the state down, you're seeing local people start to shut down. We had two things yesterday, one here and one in the courts. What are they? Well, you know, Mike DeWine does leave it up to local governments to decide what's right <laughs> for them. So, um, no, uh, yeah, the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner now said it's going to close its office to the public because of the local and statewide spike in the coronavirus. Medical examiner spokesman uh, Chris Harris said that normal functions at the office, including uh, autopsies and other tests that they do there, will continue as normal, uh, but non-essential workers will work from home. Uh, and members of the public who need to access the building for picking up property of a family member who died will need to call the office and actually schedule an appointment. So um, there's no timetable for reopening, which is kind of telling. Um, and but this doesn't mean like they're cutting open bodies in their garages, right? I mean, the, the no, duty of the medical examiner no, no, no. is still at the building. No, it's like he's like he's like we said, it, non-essential workers are, are going to work from home. The 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 medical examiners, the people who actually do autopsies and stuff like that, um, you know, and they have like labs there where they do testing for other stuff. So uh, I assume most of those most of those employees will continue to work there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're starting to see, you know, I, we haven't we haven't published this yet. It'll publish this morning. But, you know, there were several people at the Justice Center who have tested positive. So you're starting to see. You know, these things that shut down in the spring or early summer are, you know, and reopened in at basically normal function are are sort of scaling back a little bit out of concern of for what's happening around the state. Well, think, but think about it. how would you have felt if you had been summoned to jury duty the last couple of months? If you're trying to protect yourself from the coronavirus, that I mean, that would have been a challenge for a lot of people. And I guess that's over for a while, too. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, the in-person court, I think is shut down until December. So, you know, I mean, you know, we have a few weeks here where they're going to try to see if things can get under control, but you know, it's, it's, you know, we haven't really seen the peak of anything yet. Yet, It doesn't look like we're rounding the curve of anything. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, I feel like we're going to probably see people kicking the can down the road a little more. Okay. So, I can't go to the coroner's office to to do business. I can't be in a jury trial, but I can still go to a wedding with 300 people drinking and dancing on a dance floor, right? Right. You can go to hula hands and get, uh, you know, <laughs> some chicken wings. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's it's we're it, it's getting to a point where there's a lot of disconnect between what can and can't happen right now. So you know, I, I, I look forward to today and, and seeing what little gets done about it at the state level again. So, okay. yeah, well, I'll be looking forward to that briefing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is an Ohio Supreme Court ruling good for the taxpayers of Cuyahoga County, but not so much for a whole bunch of county employees? Laura Johnson, there are a whole bunch of county workers that had been thinking for the past few years they were coming in for a windfall. And that's not quite what's happening. No. Um, so with the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that several hundred current or former county employees cannot proceed with a class action lawsuit that seeks millions of dollars in wages they claim were unfairly denied. I think we're talking about $14 million. The decision from the Supreme Court didn't determine whether their pay was unfairly reduced, only that they can't pursue it in civil court and they have to be dealing with this administratively. So here's what happened. Back in 2012, when I was covering county government and the Reform County Council and executive were new, 
the county council wanted to create conformity among all the county employees who had previously worked for an array of individually elected officials. You remember we elected the auditor and the sheriff and everybody was separate. So they passed an ordinance that required all employees to work a 40-hour week, which includes includes a one-hour paid lunch period. So still 35 hours of actual work time. But previously, a number of county employees had been working the 35-hour week with unpaid one-hour lunch breaks. So when this change was made, it effectively lowered their hourly pay rate, even though their total pay remained the same. And that was the basis of the lawsuit. Okay. You're listening to the <laughs> <laughs> Did Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio finally acknowledge that Joe Biden is America's next president like most of the rest of the world did Saturday? Jane Cahoon, it's been a little bit odd to see some of the leading Republicans in the country stay quiet on this when it's clear the tidal wave has washed ashore. Joe Biden's the next president. Donald Trump's going through his little machinations to try and save some face. But the election's been decided. So what is our governor done. Well, I'm I'm not sure it was actually an acknowledgement. So so you be the judge of this. He issued a statement on Monday congratulating Biden, but he referred to him as vice president Joe Biden, not not president elect. And then he quickly noted that President Donald Trump's lawyers have every right to challenge election irregularities in court and and he, and but then he said when lawsuits have concluded and the election results are certified it is important for all Americans to honor the outcome. So, you know, you can take from that what you want, but uh, at least he said congratulations, even though he was not saying what he was congratulating him for. And as you said, this statement comes as Trump and many other Republicans, including the Ohio Republican Party, are refusing to recognize Biden uh, as the winner, suggesting so far without evidence that that, uh, there was widespread uh, voter fraud. So, and then, you know, we have Trump supporting congressmen like Jim Jordan and Warren Davidson, who also continue to say the election isn't, isn't over. Although some Ohio Republicans like Congressman Steve Stivers, uh, former Congresswoman Deborah Price and former Ohio House Speaker Ryan Smith have all called for, you know, accepting the election results. And Lieutenant Governor John Houston somewhat acknowledged that, that Biden was on his way to becoming president. He, even before they made the Saturday announcement, he said, it appears Joe Biden will be declared the winner of last week's election. And, you know, when the, when they declare the final results, we should honor the outcome. So how does what DeWine said reconcile with what he said in multiple briefings about how he is 100% confident that, that the loser of the election will leave gracefully and there'll be a clear uh, transition, peaceful transition of power. Well, I mean, he, he, you know, the second part of his statement where where he said that it's important for all Americans to honor the outcome, it is in line with what he said before. But he's not totally going against Trump here or anything, you know. And and he's he's probably happy he delivered Ohio for Trump, and there isn't any dispute here, which. There very well could be because, uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, we allow 10 days for mail-in ballots to arrive as long as they're postmarked the day before the election. So just imagine if the results were were close here. You know, we'd probably we'd probably have a challenge here, but I'm going off on a tangent. But in, a, in any event, I mean, I don't think DeWine's directly contradicting himself, but he's just being super cautious. 
I, I, I have a solution for this. I, I this is Chris Wernowski. I uh, I think Mike DeWine should come together with his colleagues on the other side of the aisle and find a solution to no, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Gonna have to leave it there. There's not quite enough time to get in another question. We'll have to save some of these other stories for later in the week if the news ever slows down. So uh, you guys finished a little early. Go outside. Enjoy the uh, the weather. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right. Yes, Thanks, sir. Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow.